Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and before we start today, I have a couple of quick announcements. So one is that we will soon be doing our 100th episode. It's hard to believe, but I thought it might be fun if people are interested in submitting questions on anything, anything that you think would be interesting, that you want to know about ACRAC, about anything we've covered, uh, then submit the questions. Send them in to ACRAC at ACRAC.com, and... We, if we get enough and we think we can put it together, we'll uh, put together a 100th episode trying to answer listener questions. Now, no promises, depending on how many we get and whether it's doable. Uh, it may or may not actually happen, but I thought it might be fun. So if that idea is interesting to you, send in a question, and we'll do our best to answer it. This current episode is the 99th, so there won't be that much time to do it. So if you're listening to this as it is posted, which is on December 6th of 2018, Make sure you get your questions in quickly. And again, apologies if we don't actually get to all of them or if we don't end up doing that episode uh, at all. But it's something to think about, and uh, feel free to participate if you'd like. All right, and then the second announcement is that this episode is going to be featured on anesthesiologynews.com. So check it out. They've got a lot of great content over there, and you can find this episode along with other ACRAC episodes that they have featured, anesthesiologynews.com. All right. Let's get started. I'm super excited to have with me by phone today uh, one of the really fantastic and pioneering people in anesthesia when it comes to thinking about substance abuse disorders and how to prevent them in anesthesia providers. This is Dr. Mike Fitzsimmons from Massachusetts General Hospital. He's an assistant professor of anesthesiology. He's the director of cardiac anesthesiology, and he's the chairperson of the advisory panel on substance use disorders prevention for the ASA, the American Society of Anesthesiology. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to do a show with me today. Well, thank you very much. I, re- I really appreciate it. I've certainly enjoyed my, uh, my visits down to Hopkins to talk about this topic, so uh, it- it's wonderful to be here today. Yeah, and I'll, uh, Mike, you, when you gave grand rounds here, uh, I think it was just really impactful. We all uh, took it really to heart and are working on trying to emulate some of the programs you have, and similarly, your article uh, that came out in Anesthesiology in October of this year, just a couple months ago, was really fantastic and I think has opened a lot of people's eyes to some of the important issues here, so we'll talk about all of that. Why don't we start just kind of very basically, tell me, what do we know about substance abuse in medicine and in general and in anesthesia specifically? You know, it's, it's, you know, it's obviously a very good question. I think if you kind of start with the honest truth is that physicians, nurses, other health care providers are really no different than the general population at all. You know, we are we're subject to the same sort of diseases that anybody else has out there, and that does not exclude the family of diseases that are substance use disorders. You know, right now we about 1% to 2% of anesthesiologists, unfortunately, either abuse, misuse, or become dependent upon many of the substances that they should actually be administering their patients in the course of care. And there's been multiple studies over the years 
And the incidence has really been pretty stable between 1% and 2% of faculty and residents, although recent data uh, published um, by, uh, by a group out of the Mayo Clinic shows that the incidence unfortunately seems to be increasing. That article was published in 2013 by Dr. Warner, and uh, Keith Berge was involved with, uh, with that article, and, and the incidence did seem to show an uptrend. So, you know, despite a lot of our efforts, you were really not make, having the impact that we really would like uh, we'd really like to. Yeah, so it sounds like we definitely need to be doing more, and I think you guys are out ahead on this. What about uh, anesthesia residents in particular? Are they at higher risk? Well, so Berkey's article did show that they, they seem to be at a higher risk, and they, residents seem to be about 1.5 to 2%, certainly closer to 2%. And again, multiple studies, even since the 1950s, show that the incidence is just not going down at all. A study by Alexander back in 2000 that showed kind of the cause-specific uh, um, causes of death among anesthesiologists and that our life expectancy was actually reduced a little bit compared to other other um, uh, internists, essentially, and that was largely related to suicide, substance use disorders, and other risk-taking behavior. Now, to answer your question, what that did show is that the highest risk of substance use disorders appeared to be during that first five years after completion of medical school, which is the time in which uh, individuals are completing residence in anesthesiology, or they're entering a fellowship, or their first one or two years as a practicing anesthesiologist. So they do seem to have a bit higher rate than physicians that have practiced for a longer period of time. But the truth is the rate never goes to zero. The risk continues into the 50s, the 60s, and I'm, I'm sure beyond that. Right. Interesting. So the highest risk period are those first five years, but still obviously not zero risk after that. And do, is, do we have any idea why those first five years are higher risk? Is it a higher stress time? Is it that if you don't develop a disorder in the first five years, you're, you're maybe just less likely to in general? You know what? There, there's not any clear reason at all why um, you know why our rate seems to be seems to be higher. Um, you know, we can we can you know we can guess that you know it's a tremendous change in an individual's life. They're moved from the protective environment of medical school to all of a sudden they're they're working on their own. The, the hours are a lot the hours are a lot longer. Um, they could be looking for more release. You know whether it's in alcohol or their substances. There's probably an element of curiosity right there, but I think a big portion of it is it's kind of the first time that individuals have direct, ready access to these substances. You know, we're one of the few physicians that actually get get um, opioids, benzodiazepines, and other drugs directly in our hands and injected into a patient. And we see the effects of those drugs, and I think in many cases individuals become curious about it, but I think also they unfortunately look at it as a means to perhaps treat other problems that are going on. Dep- you know, uh, depression would depression would be one of them, and then you know other in- intrinsic disorders. Right, right, and that's huge. Is that, uh, and I, I know we'll get to this uh, a bit later, but that there may be someone who is abusing substances uh, may have a lot more going on than just a substance abuse disorder. And I know you guys are really uh, very involved in trying to identify that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so let me ask you, what substances are most common in anesthesia providers? I assume it's things that we have access to, like some of the things you mentioned. 
Yeah, you know, over time, fentanyl seems to be the number one culprit if you put all the studies together. And those are studies out of the United States, Great Britain, New Zealand, Brazil, all over the place. I mean, every study seems to show that opioids are the number one substances of abuse, but benzodiazepines, ketamine, you know, uh, cocaine was it was a, a common substance more in the past, and it was largely related to what people had access to. And anesthesiologists tend to have access to uh, to opioids. You look at some other physicians. Uh, I've read that emergency room physicians tend to have more problems with like heroin and cocaine because they have more access to individuals from the street. Mm-hmm. That makes Surgeons sense. in otolaryngology, a specialty that often use cocaine for its benefits, which is pain relief and vasoconstriction, they tended to have higher rates of abuse of cocaine. So, again, a lot of it depends on where your access actually comes from. But in anesthesiologist, it's largely opioids. Right. Okay. And what about propofol? You know, we don't think of propofol as an addicting substance or or necessarily as something uh, similar to fentanyl that's maybe has street value, but are there are people abusing propofol? Is that something that we Yeah. They certainly are. The the, the highest Profile uh, event obviously was with Mike, with Michael Jackson and uh, in his use and un- unfortunate death and loss of a very talented person, but we are seeing an increased uh, use of, of propofol in the anesthesia community. Um, it, the it has a high rate of death. I think the the rate of uh, death as the initial presentation may have been like twenty percent or so. It was actually actually pretty high, and people use it for you know it can give some people different fantasies. But I think in some people use it just to try and get some sleep. They mm-hmm. see how quickly that patients uh, patients uh, pass out from the administration of the drug. And some individuals who are just desperate to get sleep will actually take the drug. And part of our problem with propofol is we just don't control it as well as we really should in the hospitals. I mean, my, my view is that we probably should be controlling propofol just as much as we do uh, the opioids. Uh, the opioids. Right, interesting. And so uh, there's probably some number of deaths of anesthesia providers uh, that are, as you may have mentioned before, accidental. They're trying to get some sleep from propofol and they do too much and end up, uh, you know, going apneic and, and dying, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, in fact, we, you know, I, I think it's, it's very unclear whether a lot of these deaths are suicide or are they just accidental overdoses and we don't really know and I'm you know doing a little more study now in suicide and regardless there's still tragic losses of very, of very talented individuals right absolutely okay so what about risk factors what do we know about the things if anything that put a, a given anesthesia provider at a higher risk of developing a substance abuse disorder well unfortunately we really don't know that much about it um, you, you know a decent study that was done I think around 2015 16 or 17 I can't exactly remember what year it was looked at some of the risk factors among residents in anesthesiology and interestingly enough it seemed to find that individuals that graduate from foreign medical schools may actually have a lower rate of substance use disorders than American graduates, and we really we're not exactly sure why. But you know that seems to be one thing. 
that we can say is maybe a protective factor is that you've graduated from from a foreign medical school. And I don't really have any theories, you know, why why that is either. Other 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 than that, uh, it's very difficult to say individuals that you know that really are at high risk for sub you know for substance use disorders. We we unfortunately just don't know. Interesting. Okay. So we know that that one interesting kind of factoid there. And then I would imagine, you know, anybody with a prior history of substance abuse obviously is going to be at higher risk for for uh, either continuing it or relapsing. Um, but oh, ab- absolutely, and when we look at relapse, you know, there are risk factors for re- for relapse, and you know, two of them are if they have a, another type of an axis two disorder or another psychiatric disorder in addition to a substance use disorder, or a family history of substance use disorders may put them at a higher rate for a relapse after they have developed one of the diseases. Great, and so that takes me to to my next question about relapse, or I guess first let's talk about treatment. So let's say we do we do um, find out uh, or identify someone who is abusing um, some of the drugs we have access to. Uh, hopefully, before we find them, uh, you know, in a call room dead, uh, which is the kind of horrible endpoint that this can lead to. You know, what do we do? How can we uh, help them? Is there a successful treatment for this? So, you know, first of all, it's Treatment is absolutely imperative right here, and um, in, in medicine, we're very fortunate, you know, among, among the physicians to have physicians' health services. Uh, virtually every state in the country has a group of indiv- a group of individuals that an individual can go to um, and ask for care. And the physicians' health services generally serve as case managers to help di- direct an individual's care. They don't necessarily provide care. But they do provide guidance into treatment programs. They can work with the state medical board if it's indicated on an individual's license. They can work with the hospital to make sure that the individual, when they do enter into recovery, if they do enter into recovery, that they actually have a safe, appropriate environment to go back into that they're actually ready to go back into that environment, that they've signed a contract that says they're going to be involved in a 12-step program. They're going to see a psychiatrist slash addictionologist. They're actually going to get drug testing during the, period, during the period of recovery. They're going to meet with physician's health service. And all of those seem to increase a physician's chance of actually making a successful recovery. But individuals can't do it alone, and this can't be, you know, shoved under the, un, under the rug, and an individual can't just say, okay, I'm going to stop. That's not good enough. They need to really go into a structured program. So a large study by, uh, by Bob DuPont, who used to be one of the formal, former White House drug, drug czars, and Greg Skipper looked at anesthesiologists, and our rate of recovery was the same as others physicians that go into treatment through Physicians Health Services. A little over 70% stayed clean or stayed in recovery for five years. Around 20% relapsed. And then under the absolute best of conditions in these very fine programs, and this included inpatient treatment, uh, inpatient treatment around 2 to 3% ended up dying during that five-year period. So unfortunately, we still lose a lot of individuals, even those that are actually in recovery. Yeah, so it sounds like definitely has to be a structured program, um, yeah. even then, kind of at best, we're talking about 70% um, 
success rates, which is great for those 70%. What about, um, is there any thought on, should people who are anesthesia providers, um, develop a substance abuse disorder, get into one of these programs, uh, and should they then come back to anesthesia, or is it is there any thought on that, or is are they better off coming back to medicine in a different capacity with less access to these drugs? You know, it's a, it's a continual debate. Uh, you know, first of all, I am absolutely zero tolerance. We can't look the other way in this. I, I but I'm not necessarily one strike and you're out. All circumstances are very very different with individuals, and you know, one of the big risks I, I think about is time risk on an individual. And time risk is how long are they going to be exposed to these drugs and everything through the rest of their career, their career assuming that they have gone through an excess, successful inpatient course of treatment, they're involved in physician's health service, they're getting drug testing afterwards. Even then, how long are they going to be exposed to these drugs? Let's say you're a 55-year-old person, you've gone through a divorce, you have a few financial problems, and you just take some propofol to get some sleep and get away from all the stress. Well, after that, let's say you make a fine recovery, you're dedicated to your recovery, you admit you have a problem, all the ducks are in order, all the ducks are in order, you have the full support of your, your colleagues or your department chairperson, you have about maybe 10 or 15 years left in your career. A resident physician that kind of has the same things may have 40 or 45 years of their career left. And that's a long period of time risk to expose the, to these drugs. So I think the trainees in anesthesia, you really need to think very, very hard whether it's um, beneficial to expose them to these drugs for the rest of the career, or should you really direct them into another specialty where they're not handling the not handling those drugs? But uh, it's we, we really don't know what the answer is, and I think it's it's best to address it on a case by case basis. You know, I I think the idea of everybody gets a couple of strikes is absolutely wrong, and I think a universal one strike and you're out program may actually end up being detrimental because I think people may actually hide and they may not seek treatment because they know that there's not real they're not going to necessarily be given another chance despite their best efforts. So unfortunately, I can't give you an exact answer on it because I don't think there is an exact answer. Right, that's a great point. And I think that we one of the points you made which I think is really key is that if we are going to have people coming back to anesthesia around these medications, we want to think about their individual circumstances. And then uh, the testing is a big thing, right? If we want to be safe and we want to make sure that, that we're making sure people don't end up relapsing and, and getting into uh, you know uh, uh, danger for themselves, we would want to be testing them frequently. And it sounds like that's a component of these structured programs. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If, 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 if an individual goes through physician's health service, they're going to get drug tested. And the American Medical Association definitely supports drug testing as a portion of a effective recovery program. Effective recovery program, and again, that that's one area where they feel that the drug testing, you know, is probably beneficial is as part of a structured recover, uh, recovery program. Right. So one of the big issues that always comes up, I'm sure you guys discuss it, we discuss it, is the importance of colleagues looking out for colleagues and thinking of this as a way to help 
their colleagues rather than hurt them. In other words, if you suspect someone, you want to say something rather than try to, you know, quote unquote, protect them um, because they could end up in a lot of trouble um, or even dying if, if this doesn't get identified. So what kinds of behaviors, what kinds of things do, do we want people to look out for and potentially say something if they see them happening in someone? Okay, good. So, you know, just, just take a quick step back. You know, I think we need to look out for our colleagues for all kinds of problems yeah. anyway. You know, I, I think that, you know, we as physicians, we have a high rate of suicide. We do have a rate of substance use disorders. We have high rates of burnout and depression. And, uh, you know, substance use disorders are kind of a small component of that family of challenges that we face every day. So I think, first of all, we really need to have vigilance for evidence of anything that could could indicate an impaired performance or an impaired provider. And we can't necessarily assume that it is a substance use disorder, but you can't necessarily just rule it out by just asking somebody and then then blowing then blowing it off. So what sort of behaviors do you do you look for? Individuals that show up late for work, um, individuals that fall asleep in the operate in the operating room, um, people that whose drug accountability in the operating room uh, is off, an individual whose personality changes. You know they were they were they were happy go lucky friend of everybody, and all of a sudden they're lashing out and they're arguing and they're fighting with people. So changes in behavior, changes in appearance. You know, they used to be the dapper individual, and now, you know, their hair's not combed, they're not shaving, it doesn't look like they've changed their clothes, you know, changes in physical appearance, weight, uh, weight, weight loss. But then there's also the individual, too, that does reach out. You know, they may not directly say they have an issue, but you know, but they're starting to ask. They're 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 starting to indicate that they that they that they need some uh, that they need some help. So, I, you know, there's. I think one way of looking at it is, you may not know exactly what's wrong, but you kind of know when a performance or an individual is just not right, and that's when you need to intervene. And sit down with the individual and have and have a discussion about what's going on. We have a very low threshold for getting a four cause drug test because substance use disorders are the thing that will kill anesthesiologists. Right, right, and that's really key. So let's let's um, well first let me just emphasize again, as you said, that this is really crucial. If you if someone has any of these signs, or if you as a as a provider of any kind, but certainly as a colleague, whether it's a co-resident or a co-student of, of some provider out there, if you're noticing these things, we really want to ask you to let someone know, whether it's you who sit down with them to find more out or whether you tell your supervisors. And Mike, as you said, the key here is we don't want people to be afraid to do this. We don't want it to be uh, you know, a, an absolute punishment. We want it to be known that what this will get someone is help and support so that they can be safe and hopefully get back to work once they've gone through, if, if they turn out to be, uh, to have a substance abuse disorder, they can get the support and help they need to hopefully treat it and get them back where they want to be. But the key is making sure they stay safe. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and going back to, you know, if, 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 the end of, if the institution has an effective way or the department has an effective way of staging interventions when they're concerned about anybody for any reason, most of your interventions are not going to be substance use disorders, but that there's still a problem there. You know, we, again, have a very low threshold, so we, we always have, generally myself, our program director, 
if necessary, a vice chair, the chairperson, and a psychiatrist for every single intervention we stage on a colleague. And we explain what our concerns are and why we're concerned about it. And we're also explain why these particular behaviors could indicate a substance use disorder. And then we listen to their side of the story. And then we generally go get a drug test and then put the individual out on a medical leave of absence while we're waiting for the drug test results. We follow up with them. And if the drug test results come back negative, we make sure we treat the behaviors or performance that brought them to our attention and then get them back to the work environment when it's the right time to do it. Right. If it is a substance use disorder, then Physicians Health Service gets involved and they start helping us manage the situation and getting the individual into inpatient treatment, which is really the key is to begin with inpatient, with inpatient treatment. But again, most interventions are not going to be substance use disorders. Right. And I, I love that in your article, you talk about how, uh, I believe it was six, but some number of, um, of four-cause uh, tests that were done during this period of time were all, the tests were all negative, but you identified issues you could help the, the providers with. For example, if someone's falling asleep in the operating room, uh, they may, uh, you want to know if they're abusing drugs, but if they're not, it may be that they're, they have issues going on that aren't allowing them to sleep, or if they are showing up late, they've got some family issues that they need help with to support them so that they can be at work on time. And it's those things that you can identify with a good structured approach. Absolutely. And, you know, and I think that the key thing, too, as I said in a, in, a, in a recent talk, is, you know, once you sort through these issues that are not substance use disorders, it's important to move on. You know, I think the administration needs to move on. The individual needs to move on. And, you know, these shouldn't necessarily be things you hold over an individual's head or you treat them as a weakness or something. You know, I, I think if you treat and do things right, you move on. Now, with substance use disorders, you know, you do need to keep an eye on people and you need to make sure they constantly have the support they actually need. But no one should be held, you know, should kind of be held hostage uh, to the to these. Right. So let's just turn to your uh, paper and kind of the intervention that you discussed now, which was uh, 13 years of the program that you've done. Um, and what you showed was that you took what was a small but, but non-zero rate of uh, substance abuse disorders being identified in your trainees uh, in the 10 years prior to the start of this and now down to zero for the past 13 years. So that was a combination of both a four-cause and random drug screening program. Tell me a little more about what you've done and, and you know what you would recommend to others interested in doing a similar program. Okay, so, so first of all, it's really important to make sure that, you know, that, that, that people understand, you know, that the drug testing is a mere component of a comprehensive effort to reduce substance use disorders. It is not the only thing, and it cannot be the only thing. Yeah. Even though studies have shown that education and substance control has not reduced the incidence of substance use disorders, I still believe in them. You know, I think that residents need chats. You know, as soon as they come in from an individual that really knows what they're doing and they present what the problem is, I think you should have the spouses of residents or significant others come in 
and be present so that they can be told about what these potential problems are and they can be told about what to watch for also so that it's not just the administration, but it's also their family keep it, keeping an eye on them too. Yeah. We need to do a lot better with substance control. And that's, you know, making sure that we, um, you know, that, that our, all our substances are accounted for. You know, that we have very strict measures, that we appropriately get rid of substances that we, that we don't use, that we keep an eye and make sure individuals aren't checking out far more drugs than the average anesthesiologist was. We need to make sure that drugs just aren't left, sit, aren't left sitting around. And there's other areas that we can enhance uh, substance control. Uh, surveillance of medical records. I kind of mentioned a little bit of all that already. But looking at medicine records and making sure there's no discrepancies between what an individual took out from a pharmacy or a machine and what they actually administered to the patient and then subsequently either wasted or returned. But looking at the data from years ago, we noted that nothing had really worked and the incidents had not changed. So we just, you know, our, our chairperson at the time, Warren Zapel, wanted to implement drug testing. I love Warren. He's a very good person. But I felt that I had a little more experience. And so um, in that area from, uh, you know, primarily from the military, and we sat down with a multidisciplinary group to discuss the issues, and I wrote up a policy and a plan for actually how we were going to do pre-employment, or what some people call pre-placement, random, and then a vigorous four-cause drug testing program, learning from what we did with with, uh, with aviation and the Department of Transportation, how it, we thought it could reduce the incidence. Yeah, and uh, so the components, uh, I think everybody goes through a, a pre-employment screening. Yes. Uh, then there is for cause, which would be for any of those things we already talked about that are, are kind of behaviors that are potentially associated with substance abuse. Yep. Um, and then the random screening. Yep. And uh, so let's start with the, the for cause. So if those things are identified um, in, a, in a provider, you bring them in to one of those meetings that you described mm-hmm. with yourself, the um, a, a vice chair or the chair, and, mm-hmm. a, and the psychiatrist is a really interesting addition. Tell me a little more about the role the psychiatrist plays in those meetings. Well, so we're, we've been actually extremely fortunate. We have, we have an individual that's kind of the, the unofficial department psychiatrist here. Um, he doesn't necessarily treat individuals in our department, but he does serve as the gatekeeper to the psychiatric care family. And he comes in and sits down, and I brief him ahead of time, and um, I will call him up and I'll say, you know, um, uh, Dr. So-and-so, um, you know, I, this has recently been brought to my attention. I think we need to do a four-cause drug test. This is what we're concerned about. And he always says, yeah, let me know the time and the place, and I'll be there. And he comes in, you know, primarily to, you know, to be a part of the program, show that we're serious about this, show that, you know, we realize we don't know all the answers, but also to help read the individual to see if there's any extra concerns they may have during the intervention. And then we bring the individual in, we move them, remove them from work as, 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 as uh, confidentially as possible so that it's not, you know, you don't have police and security go down. So we spend a little time thinking how we can get the individual out of work in a, in a, um, in a confidential manner. We bring them in the room and we sit down. And again, we explain what our concerns are. And, you know, we 
we've heard individuals say things like, you know, Mike, I am just, I'm under so much pressure. I am not using drugs, but this and this and this is going on. Um, I'm going through a divorce and, you know, I just know, I know I'm not performing like I should. And then others say, I don't know why. I don't know why so-and-so thinks my performance is not good. And then, as I mentioned, then we take, you know, then we, you know, if we feel they're safe, we take them over for the drug test, and then they go on a medical leave of absence pending the, uh, pending the results of that, of that test. Right. Now, if let's say a report comes in, one of your faculty calls you and says, you know, uh, my resident today is falling asleep in the OR, I'm concerned. Do you have to get them out right then and there? You know, how, how acute is the approach to getting them out of work and into the meeting? Yeah, generally right then and there. I mean, you know, we, we, we will make a few calls first and make sure we have everyone available, the psychiatrist, the other individuals doing the intervention, and then uh, we, we arrange to have another individual come in. We try and get them off on, you know, like they're being sent out for lunch or something like that so that everyone doesn't necessarily know what, you know, what, what is going on. And, you know, and then we do our intervention. Right. Okay, that's great. And, and again, like we said before, the key is the quality of that intervention to identify what else might be going on and provide the support that that person needs. Absolutely. You know, again, the vast, vast, vast majority of these are not substance use disorders. Right. Okay. Now, you know, individuals often feel they're being accused of a substance use disorder, but, you know, it's generally very, very low on what we call our differential diagnosis, but it's still there. It could still kill somebody. And that's why we go through and get get uh, get the drug test. Yeah, absolutely. And in your experience, when when you have to do one of these, if it's you know again you're dealing with whatever, uh, assuming the drug test is negative, do people tend to reintegrate back then into the program without a lot of resentment that this was done? For, for the for the most part, absolutely. Uh, you know, there there you know at times people can be a little bit bitter and feel they were falsely accused of something. But I've also heard people say, "Boy, that was." That was really professional, or my, I'm really sorry for the trouble that I've caused, or um, yeah, I can see why you guys were, you know, you guys were concerned. Um, and then others often ask for letters of recommendation and support, and you know, and you know, to, to help help them move through. I, th- I think the real key is to actually be very sincere about this. And but again, as also mentioned, you know, when you help an individual with their problems. And those problems are con- under control, and everything move on. Right. You know, believe me. There's in large, large groups, large academic centers. There's always something else to deal with. So it's not right to hold things over individual you know, individuals' heads. Just move on. Right. Absolutely. I think that's really key. So let's talk about the random part of the of the intervention. Mm-hmm. So um, was that difficult to set up, and and you know, kind of coordinate all the different pieces of random drug screening? Yeah, random drug screening is difficult. It is difficult to start. Fortunately, we had the support. You know, again, we, we, we convened a committee of uh, multiple different people, chairperson, vice chairperson, director of critical care, myself, the residency program director, office of general counsel, hospital graduate medical education program, and we also uh, notified uh, the uh, chief medical officer 
that this is what we wanted to do, and we, we definitely had their had their support. We designed our program after the Department of Transportation guidelines because obviously they had been doing this since the since the 1980s, and we felt that was the best way to implement the program. The real challenge was implementing it for those individuals that were already in the department. Right. For residents that were already here, we started on a voluntary and anonymous basis. That means they could, you know, they could sign up for drug testing or not. Around 43% of the residents that, um, that were in the program at the time actually volunteered and said they'd get drug tested. And, uh, you know, so a little over, you know, 50, 50% said, you know, did not sign up for it. But I think 40-some percent is actually pretty good. Yeah. As I recall, the, you know, the, the residents that signed up at the highest rate were actually the first-year residents. Yeah. Um, but we wanted it voluntary and anonymous so that if an individual didn't sign up, they didn't need to worry that they wouldn't be eligible for chief resident or some other important uh, position in the residency. We did not want to scare people away from that. Uh, but then subsequent to that, for all incoming classes, it was required. Now, for the staff members, it's a little harder because people do say, look, Mike, I've been clean for 10, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I'm not going to have a problem. Well, the data does show the incidence does not go to zero. And we felt in the, for esprit de corps and the fact that the incidence didn't go to zero, that staff members needed to be subject to the program. But we had to make a few concessions, too. You know, it's difficult to get staff in, and, um, and you know, staff often are work off-site. And so it's been a little more of a challenge, you know, with the, you know, the regularity of getting the staff members in as it is with the residents that are generally at one, at one location almost every single day of, 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 of the week. Right. Now, the, when you, the initial part that was voluntary and anonymous, the anonymous part was that no one in the administration would know who had and who had not volunteered. Is that right? Exactly. But if a drug test came out positive, it would be unblinded and we would act on it. Right. But, um, you know, so that, that's, what, that, that's what the deal was. We weren't going to just ignore the results. Right. Uh, but assuming the drug test came up ne- you know, negative, I wasn't going to receive your name. Right. And then there's also a person whose job is to uh, first look at those positive results and then decide if there's a uh, an actual good reason for them. For example, if someone tests positive for uh, a an opiate but they have a prescription for you know Vicodin because they just got their knee replaced or something, that would be um, they the, this person would then say, okay, this is not a true positive. Exactly. They, they, that if they could produce the fact that they had the prescription for the individual called a medical review officer, and there are federal guidelines for training the medical review officers and how they review the results. And if that individual determines that a result is net, you know, that a quote positive result has a valid explanation, those results come back to us as negative. Okay. Right. So that way, there's no reason for an individual in our department to know what medications you're on for a condition in which you are appropriately treated by a physician with whom you have a physician-patient relationship. Right. You know, we we feel that you know that, that privacy actually is very very important uh, important though. But we have had cases where the medical review officer has called us and said, you know, I spoke with so and so. The drug test is positive. They do not have a val- They do not have a valid reason for it. Right, right. So, 
and then the um, once the test, if a test were to be positive, there's a second sample, or I guess that that initial sample is divided in two, and then that second sample or second half of the sample would be sent for a confirmatory test to really eliminate the risk of a of false positive uh, test, right? Okay, so one way to think about it is when you when you give a urine sample, the, the urine is divided into two containers. Both of those came, containers are sealed and labeled, okay, sealed and labeled. So one of them is immediately sent for testing. The other is actually held in reserve. If that first test, which is an ELISA, comes up negative, your drug test result is negative. If that first test comes up positive or indeterminate, then it goes for a gas chromatography mass spectroscopy, a very, very sensitive you know, way to actually determine if there's a substance there. If the test is negative, you're negative, good to go. If it's positive or indeterminate, then it goes to the medical review officer, and the medical review officer then reviews those results. If you can produce a valid prescription, the results will be reported as negative. If you can't, then our department is called and we stage an intervention at that point. If it's just a random test, it's obviously the first intervention. If it was for a four-cause test, we already staged an intervention anyway, but we're going to stage another one to say, hey, look, you know what, we, we need to make some treatment plans right now. Right. So, you know, if that random test comes up, we stage our intervention. We ask, you know, hey, you know, we know you spoke with the medical review officer. We was t- we were told this drug test is positive. Do you have an explanation? And we've had people say, oh, you know what? I have a prescription for this substance. The problem is it's in my medical record. I'm from, you know, such and such a different location. I can't produce a prescription. Well, we've gone through plenty, plenty of hoops, got that prescription, and then said, all right, you know what? We have, you have a prescription, and we, then those results are considered negative results, and it's back to work. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. What, what about marijuana? How does that play in? Do you test for it um, or not? No, great question. And obviously, that you know, it's very a big, big contemporary issue right now. So we do not test for marijuana pre-employment. We do not test random. We do test for cause. So if your performance appears to be impaired, and we do a for cause drug test, and marijuana is present, it's a very difficult argument to make that it's not the marijuana speaking. So physicians that choose to use marijuana need to understand that they are actually taking a risk. Just like if you choose to use alcohol, you're 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 choosing to t- choosing to t- uh, to take a risk there. Um, that, you know, we we debated this 15 years ago or 16 years ago now when we were creating the policy, and then at that time it was decided not to test for marijuana under those two circumstances. But we do test for cause. Personally, I would encourage programs that are starting drug testing program to test for marijuana. And why is that, Mike? Well, because we just don't know really the, the impact of marijuana you know, is very well. You know, individuals, it can absolutely impair your performance. It can absolutely impair your decision-making ability or make you more spontaneous. And, you know, critical decision-making is a key component to being a very safe anesthesiologist. And with marijuana, you have the acute effects, you know, the, you know, the munchies and paranoia. Right. You have the residual effects that, you know, extend any amount of time after use. Could be a few hours, could be 12 hours. And then you have the chronic effects of marijuana that can last over long periods of time for those individuals that are really frequent, regular, 
you know, high-potency users. And, um, you know, there are downsides with that. And marijuana, it's um, – we're just as not as certain of the – of all of the effects of it, but I've not read a single thing that says it improves your performance. Right. So I, I think physicians need to be very, very careful if they're going to make that personal decision to use this substance that can impair your performance. Right. That makes sense. And then you mentioned alcohol. Uh, do, do the tests test for that as well? Obviously, acute intoxication with alcohol would, would also be a factor. Look, you, you can do dr- tests for alcohol. Um, you can obviously do breath tests on that. Uh, you can do uh, the most sensitive would be a blood test, which is very in, uh, invasive. We do not test for marijuana unless an indiv- unless it really looks like the individual is impaired from marijuana. I mean, from alcohol, either due to they look acutely intoxicated or they or they smell like alcohol. But it's a very good question, and perhaps we should do it, but we don't. Um, again, the most sensitive would be a blood test, and that's just very uh, very invasive. Right. Okay. Well, Mike, this has been fantastic. A lot of really important uh, stuff here, and uh, and I think in your article as well, which we'll post for people. I'll post the link for people to take a look at. Anything you think we should add that we haven't covered? You know, again, just two things. One is I think it's in, it's very very critical that people understand drug testing is not the only thing you can actually do. You need to have an entire program that really addresses education, substance control, medical record surveillance, consider drug testing, and a program, a strong program established for actually how you're going to do an interven- uh, intervention on a colleague who you're concerned about for any reason whatsoever. And ultimately, what we would like to do is a wide multi-institution study to really determine whether drug testing can reduce the incidence of substance use disorders. You know, and lastly, you know, for those of you that have health care providers in your family, you know, please understand that we are not immune to these diseases. You know, and unfortunately, you know, we, we see quite a number of suicides in health care providers. And, you know, a loss of any individual is a, is, a, is a tremendous tragedy. And, you know, a loss of a health care provider removes a good individual, but it also review, removes a, a important point of support for many, many, many people as their patients out there in society. So, uh, Jeb, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate you having me. And, um, uh, you know, please let me know if there's anything I can do for you or your listeners. Thanks so much, Mike. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Really important topic. Let us know what you think. If you have thoughts on the issue, if you've put a program together in your place, let us know. You can post comments at ACRAC.com. Everyone can see those comments and can learn from what you have to say. You can, of course, also see all the other episodes there. You can contact me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. Remember, send in questions for the 100th episode if you're interested in doing that. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. And, of course, if you're interested in supporting the making of the show, you can become a recurrent supporter by going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash ACRAC, where you can become a patron of the show. We really support any amount that you are willing to pledge in an ongoing basis, even if it's just a dollar or two. You can do that by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. That's paypal.me slash ACCRAC. 
where you can make a one-time donation to ACRAC uh, or as many donations as you want uh, in one-time increments. If you prefer that, feel free. Huge thank yous, as always, to everyone who has already donated or become a patron, and of course to Brian Park for the fantastic outlines he does on some of the episodes. You'll see those pop up on the show notes. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Mike Fitzsimmons, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.